This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and you are so lucky because this is a special bonus edition of the Radio Times podcast. I'm Jane Garvey, and I'm here with Kellyanne Taylor, and we are still reeling from this year's brilliant Radio Times TV festival at the British Film Institute on London's shimmering South Bank. Now, you heard in the last episode our chat with Heartstopper's Kit Connor, but there were lots of other events throughout the festival going on across the weekend with big names, and we thought it positively foolish not to share these with you. So, fasten your seatbelts because we'll be hearing from Professor Brian Cox, Martin Freeman, Amari Douglas, a.k.a. Roscoe from It's a Sin, Starstruck's hilarious Rose Matafeo, Stephen Merchant and Stephen Fry is on the podcast. That is that is quite a lineup. So, Stephen Fry and Professor Brian Cox. Who is the most intoxicating of the two? Come on, tell the truth. Well, I have to say I'm a huge fan of Stephen Fry. So when he walked into my makeshift podcast cupboard, yes. I was somewhat overwhelmed. My hands were very sweaty and he was so kind to me. Um, he is the most interesting man I've ever spoken to. Um, he is diligent, uh, articulate. But then on the flip side, Brian Cox came in and he was so humble, so sweet, very gently spoken. Yeah. Um, I loved having them all in my Did little... You? Okay, so you, you couldn't pick a favourite. Well, Stephen Fry, but don't tell anyone else. Okay, well, you just have me. It's worth saying, actually, there are some... I don't think we're giving away any state secrets by acknowledging there are some difficult people in the world of show business. Mm -hmm. They're not always the easiest people to be around. So let's hear it for those people like Stephen Fry, who are always well-mannered, prepared and just pleasant. So pleasant. A pleasant, pleasant man. That sounds like an understatement because he's a bit more than pleasant, but why can't they all be like that? I know, I know. They can't. I suppose life would be boring if everyone was like Stephen Fry. Let's start then, not with Stephen Fry, but with the aforementioned Professor Brian Cox. Now, he was once the keyboard player in Dream. He is that super science teacher that, frankly, we all wish we'd had, but most of us didn't. He is genuinely awe-inspiring. And Professor Cox took time at the festival to look back on his career so far. And with a brain like his... He could also look into the future as well. We started with an icebreaker of what TV he's currently watching. I mean, at the moment, the last thing I watched that I loved was Severance, actually, which I thought was brilliant on Apple. I've had lots of people talking about that. This is a tremendous piece of work, I think. You know, because it's exploring the... uh, Well, it's exploring a lot of things. I shouldn't give it away, should I? Spoilers. (laughs) But uh, I I thought it was wonderful. And and, they're directed by Ben Stiller. And uh, you wouldn't... I don't know, I tend to associate with comedy, I suppose. But it's a brilliant piece of science fiction, I suppose you'd describe it as science fiction. 
Great. And um, can we talk a little bit about your own telly career and how you got into that? Yeah, it was accident, which I think it has to be. I I always say half-jokingly, anybody who really wants to be in television shouldn't be, but I think it's probably true. And I was was just working as a a postdoc, so a researcher at CERN, um, and I got involved in two ways. One was because people just got interested in the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and I was there working. And also there was a funding um, issue, uh, which there always is with science, and so I got involved in that. We, we realised in the scientific community that people didn't really know what the value of science funding is and education in general, actually, mm. but particularly science research funding. So I got involved in lobbying to, to, to not cut science, which was, it was a funding cut at the time. And uh, that got me onto Newsnight and things like that. So it was, it was kind of a... People became, in television, thought, oh, well, he seems like you can do this and that's so I had no interest in it really and actually going back um the first documentaries that I did I was probably quite grumpy because I thought they were taking me away from doing my research you know so I was just like can we just get this over with please <laughs> you know I've, I've got better things to do than this nonsense and it kind of snowballed from there did you did you feel like a natural or was it quite intimidating or no because I say because I really um you know, I didn't really ever, and still don't really consider myself as having a career in television, actually. I don't think of myself as a as a television person. I think of myself as a physicist who does some telly. So I never really, you know, I, I care a lot about the programmes and I really enjoy making them. But I don't really, um, you know, I don't think in terms of in, tele- in a televisual way, I suppose, in a career way, put it that way. I don't think in a career way. I just enjoy doing them, yeah. and uh, but I want them to be, I want them to be educational and and, and accurate. Yeah, and so um, that's what I do. Basically. Your programs do make science accessible, um, and I wonder how important do you think it is to be making these programs that people like myself or the general public can watch and understand stuff that might not be something that they. Ha- have any knowledge of or feel like there is a barrier towards that kind of side of learning it's it's extremely important i mean when that goes back to the the my initial interest in science funding of course i mean if you want society to spend money on scientific research because you think that's a valuable thing to do then the people who pay the taxes to to support the scientific research need to know what it is and need to have some understanding of the value of it and also some enjoyment back for mm. the money that they invest you know because we've all paid we all pay for these things so CERN or you know the search for life on Mars and those things we, we all pay for them so therefore I think we all have a right to enjoy the results and yeah. to, to, to know what's happening so that's first of all but secondly it's very important because we live in societies where we have to make decisions that are based on science all the time so obvious things like climate science or the pandemic response, but basically everything, public health policy, you know, anything you can name, there is a, a scientific component to those policy choices. And if you live in a society where most people have no contact with science, so don't really understand what it is and also understand that it's the way we have a um, acquiring reliable knowledge about nature. Um, if, if people don't 
through no fault of their own don't understand that because they've not been exposed to it or it's not been presented in a way that they find appealing then we have a problem because the big decisions that we have to make now democratically are decisions which have a scientific component yeah i want to throw it back now to when you were at school during my research i found out that you got a d in maths at a level and i wondered if we could kind of reflect on that and um if you ever envisioned when you were that age because you know for a lot of people it can when they're sitting their a levels your whole life is ahead of you did you ever think you would be this successful but also someone that is a is a professor and does this entirely for a living well no i mean i was interested in astronomy and i loved doing physics and so i got an a in physics but i was also a musician and i was in a band and actually my band we 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 were were off touring immediately after the a levels so i wasn't that interested in a levels actually because i I thought i was going to be a musician so um and it's it's one of the ways that i tend to to operate actually if i don't if if i get interested in something i kind of lose interest in the other things (laughs) so so I, i decided that i was going to be a musician so that didn't really matter so um, I just, but I was, I always loved physics and I loved astronomy. So that was basically it. But I didn't think that I would do anything other than being in bands. So <laughs> off I went to being in a band and then came back at 23 to, to go when I got sick of being in a band <laughs> and decided that I wanted to do physics. Um, and fortunately, um, at that time, you, you, you could get into somewhere like the University of Manchester as a mature student with a... You know, I, all right, I had an A in physics, but a, as you say, a D in maths. And I learned actually that subsequently I learned that I could do maths, right, if I practiced. <laughs> so the, the, the lesson was that there are some things in life that you have to actually work at. <laughs> and, and for me, it was math. I think for most people, it's maths actually. I think maths is not, um, doesn't come naturally to very many people. No, but it's an, it's a, but you can do it. It's the same way that playing the piano doesn't come naturally to very many people. But you can sit there and learn it. Yeah. And it's the same with maths. To a level. You, you can't be a genius, you know, a great, <laughs> one of the world's great mathematicians or anything. But you can be good enough to be a professional scientist, definitely, and to enjoy it hugely if you just do some practice. And how do you fit it all in? Because you're still teaching and you do TV work on top of that. You know how how do you fit it into your schedule? Well, I, it's yeah, my sh- schedule is a bit of a <laughs> a disaster. I mean, I've only been back from America two days, and I'm going back next week. Oh my so I'm just in the middle of an American American tour at the moment. Wow. So I was in Salt Lake City three days ago <laughs> doing a show, oh my and then back to New York on Friday next Friday. Wow. So yeah, so it slots in just about, <laughs> just about actually. Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, appearing at the Radio Times Television Festival at the BFI. Now, there's no doubt at all that one of the standout dramas of the last couple of years was Russell T. Davis's ensemble It's a Sin, taking us into the very belly of the isolation and prejudice felt so viscerally during the initial HIV-AIDS outbreak in the UK. It's over a year, actually, since it went out on television, and the ripples from It's a Sin have disrupted and revolutionised the entire scene in British drama. Amari Douglas made his TV debut as the ostracised Roscoe and we asked Amari about the show's impact in telling this important story in LGBTQ plus history. Well, I mean, first of all, it, it, it sort of focused on a period of time that's sort of been underrepresented in terms of sort of, I guess, just sort of media 
representation in general. Um, and also, I think it's disrupted it in the sense that, like, we it brought for brought to the forefront a group of characters who, in terms of the backgrounds that they represent and 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 the communities that they represent, that we don't get to see either. However, I think you know if 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 you look at the, the the show that we made, and still the fact that sort of Russell had to push to get a show that represented these people to be sort of commissioned in the first place, I think I, I guess disruption is maybe a good word because it sort of feels like that we still need to keep pushing forwards even more. And I think like. Russell was able to make this show because Russell is Russell and he's already created such a canon of work. And I think, you know, as as far as like queer storytelling goes, like uh, th- 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 there's more generations of people out there that I hope are going to be able to, 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 to sort of rise up and are going to get given the space to like make those stories. I just think, I think it's so important. Um, and of course, Russell is the the, the leader and, and and the champion, I guess, in that sense of of bringing those stories um, into people's living rooms. Um, but I really hope, I really, really, really do hope that um, we get more and 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 just more people that are allowed to tell those stories because um, I think there's like a lot of gatekeepers who probably don't think that our stories are relatable enough or universal enough and they are and I think our show proved that Mm. beyond sort of everyone's expectations beyond our expectations as well because I was I was fearful when the show came out not because I didn't think that we had a good show but I just think because we live in an age where we hear people's opinions so frequently and on overdrive and you know people can say horrible things about you know the, the the community that we're in so it was surprising the what felt like m- majority wise just pure love towards the show so um yeah i say more of it amari douglas who played roscoe babatunde in it's a sin streaming now on 4od Still to come on this special bonus edition of the Radio Times podcast, our backstage talk from this year's television festival continues. We'll be hearing from Stephen Merchant on the Outlaw Series 2. His office mate, Martin Freeman, will discuss The Responder. And, of course, Radio Times Hall of Fame inductee Stephen Fry. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper, make sure you go to radiotimes.com slash tvfest. Loads of stories there from the festival panels, including Russell T Davis revealing behind the most harrowing scenes on It's a Sin and how he almost cut la from the script. Only almost, though. Some big Call the Midwife news and hear from the team behind Prehistoric Planet. You can get all that at radiotimes.com forward slash tvfest. Now, back to our exclusive green room chats at the BFI. Cast your mind back to January and to the nocturnal and unflinching world of the crime drama set in Liverpool, The Responder, on BBC One. It starred Martin Freeman as police responder Chris Carson. Now, we were lucky to enjoy a panel chat from the ex-Merseyside police officer and writer of the series, Tony Schumacher, executive producer of The Responder, Lawrence Bowen, and Martin Freeman himself. With Series 2 already commissioned, we caught up with Martin backstage to ask if he'd been binging the crime dramas. Um, I've been enjoying, along with everybody else, uh, Succession. I've been absolutely adoring that. I think it's a stunning piece of work. Uh, I was slightly late to call my agent um, 
and I also think that's one of the, my favourite things of the last few years now uh, I watch it with my girlfriend who is French um, and she often corrects the subtitles <laughs> and says that line was actually funnier than the, uh, than the translation but um, yeah those, those, those are two of many programmes that I really have been enjoying and I, I'm not specifically a fan of police or crime things unless they're well written the same thing as everything really I, like I don't, I don't think I'm especially drawn to any particular genre or repelled from anyone. It just depends on what it is, you know. Like if it's well written, I'm I'm there all day, you know. If it's about mountain climbing, which I don't have any particular interest in, I'll watch something about mountain climbing or heavy metal or anything that I might not be interested in. But if it's if it's a good piece of work and makes you want to watch it, then yeah. And let's talk about the responder. So, what? Did the responder illuminate to you about the police force, um, especially in regards to emotional extremes of the job, mm. gruelling cycle of night shifts? Mm. Um, did it alter your perspective towards the authorities in any way? I suppose it reiterated uh, what I know and understand about what it is to be on the job. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't really think it altered the way I see the police, to be honest. Um no, not not really. I mean, I know that it's. Uh, I've always known it's a pretty thankless job, and uh, and I don't want to do it. And I'm really glad someone else does. That's yeah. what I've always felt about the police. Um, yeah, but uh, it's. Yeah, I think it does quite a good job in sort of bringing that stuff home about the the strain, the mental strain, mm-hmm. of of being in the job and and what it, and the sort of the the toll it can take. Yeah. Yeah, the show was praised for its authenticity and the way it dealt with mental health. Mm-hmm. Was there any praise in particular that stood out to you or comments you were particularly proud of? I've been really happy, to be honest, when, when um, I have met coppers who really like it. Um, because, you know, I think the idea of the show wasn't either to overly praise or condemn the police or anything like that. You know, it was, it was, it's a piece of drama that happens to be set uh, with a policeman at the, at the middle of it. Um, but when coppers tell me... Uh, it rings true. I'm very happy with that. And obviously a big part of that is that our, our writer was a policeman for many years. Um, that's a huge part of that. Uh, so it shouldn't be that surprising. But I'm really glad we, we helped make that be, you know, the, the case that it, that it felt authentic to the people who actually do that job. Yeah, and Tony has said kind of in previous interviews that to a degree though it is fiction it is his story yeah. and I guess that's the policeman perspective yes does that add pressure or make it easier to work with someone who has so much experience about what you're acting mm. um not really no not really because because at the same time he has always been very um generous in saying that he was writing this with me in mind so it didn't feel because I mean, I'm not literally playing Tony you know I'm not I'm not uh it's not literally his story it's obviously shot through with all of his experience in the police um, and just being alive. But no, I, I didn't feel that pressure. I felt pressure really to um, to do it truthfully, as you always do, right? In, in every job, you feel that responsibility. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I do feel it particularly in this because the police are getting a really big kicking at the moment. (laughs) Some of it deserved and a lot of it not. I think. Um, so I, I certainly didn't want to be part of anything that was just um, treating them dismissively or treating the job dismissively or anything like that. Uh, so I did feel that responsibility, yeah, that we, we should come to this, as you should in every job, right, uh, respectful of the people you're portraying. Yeah. And we found out that Series 2 is um, in the works. or yes. It has been commissioned. Yes. Um, was that an easy decision for you to decide to come back? And have you seen any of the scripts? I've not seen any scripts yet. And um, I've, I'm, I'm on record many, many times over 20 years as saying I like things being finite. You know, I don't like things going on and on. So for me, it's always, even however much I've enjoyed something, it's always a genuine question. Do I want to do this again? Mm. Um, so you always have to really ask yourself that. But yeah, I mean, I, I knew quite a short time into filming The Responder that if it did happen again, that that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because <laughs> I was really, really enjoying it. I, I was having a great time from the word go, uh, which is something when you're cold and tired at three o'clock in the morning to think this is one of my most enjoyable jobs, you know, because it's so fulfilling. The writing's so good, the cast was so good and... Um, the whole crew were just giving everything. So yeah, it wasn't a very hard decision, no. no. Is there anything that you'd like to see Chris get up to in the next series? Um, <laughs> I mean, and he's cancelled. <laughs> uh, not partic- Not especially, no. I mean, I, I. one of my things that I always really like is, is to leave it in the hands of the writer um, and to I can't wait to read the first script. Um because I'm sure I will be pleasantly surprised. I mean, I, I saw a nice outline of the script that Tony sent me a few weeks ago of what he was thinking at the moment. And of course, that's subject to change and development. But um, no, there's no nothing particular. Because I wasn't, you know, it's not like I was hoping in the first series, I hope we do that and I hope we do that. I, it was a completely blank slate as far as I was concerned. And everything that he was bringing to it, I thought, oh, that's good, that's good. So I'm, I'm hoping and trusting that will be the same for the second series, yeah. And The Responder, in case you need reminding, is available to stream on BBC iPlayer and Series 2. We hope we'll start filming at some point this year or maybe early next. Now, on to The Outlaws and our chat with the writer, director and creator, Stephen Merchant. He's building on what he does best, unique sitcoms. With lots of loose ends from Series 1 of The Outlaws, Stephen Merchant told us what we can expect from Series 2. Well, when I first started writing TV, someone said to me, and I thought it was very wise words, that with good writing for a TV, whether it's comedy or drama, you should chase your characters up a tree and then you should throw rocks at them. 
And in series one, I feel like we chased them up a tree. And in series two, we're throwing rocks at them. I mean, you know, and I'm talking like breeze blocks, big old chunks of brick, you know, sheets of metal. I mean, we're throwing a lot of things at these characters. And um, and that's it, really. The idea, as you say, is that there's, there are loose ends. And instead of just pretending that magically they, they've all gone away, we're going to say, no, they're still hanging around in the air and they need to be dealt with. And so, yeah, turning the heat up on the characters is the, is the sort of fun of series two. And series two was filmed back to back with series one. And if I'm not mistaken, you wrote the second series in the midst of the pandemic because you were, quote unquote, twiddling your thumbs and wanted something to do that's right did you always have faith that the show would be a success um well i don't know that you ever can presume something's going to be a success but i know that i was very in love with the world we'd created and with the characters and by the time we started work on series two we'd begun about 10 days of filming so i'd seen the actors at work i'd seen what they were doing with the characters i had real faith in them i i liked the look of the show i felt like we were creating something quite cinematic i loved the fact that bristol was getting reflected in the show and i felt that the humor and the drama and the emotion was working so i was very enthusiastic when i set to work on series two as you say writing it that, that we had something that was going to hang together and make sense and work and you've touched upon it there but the series does have a gripping plot but its greatest asset in my opinion is its characters you know you have the charming crook frank uh book smart rani christian your character greg what did you want to explore by having such different characters who wouldn't usually come together in the same space well, the idea was that you'd start off with a group of characters that seemed almost like stereotypes, archetypes to begin with, and then you peel back the layers to see how they tick, what has led them to that moment in their lives, why have they arrived at the opinions that they have. And I think we, you know, the show was being developed during, you know, Brexit and and Trump was in power and there was a kind of feeling that society on both sides of the Atlantic was getting very divided and people were sort of retreating to their little bubbles. And it seemed to me and my co-creator Elgin that, you know, we should talk about what unites us as much as what divides us and what are the, what is the common ground. And could you take a bunch of very different people from different walks of life, throw them together, as you say, and could they find empathy? Could they uh, f- find friendship? And that seemed, if they could, quite a sort of hopeful message. Um, and so I hope ultimately the show is quite a, an optimistic one about sort of camaraderie and and unlikely friendships and the things which unite us as much as divide us and the world of crime and gangsters was something that your writing partner had experience with and i wonder if you could tell me a bit about what you learn about that world um the last time that we spoke you told me that your only run in with the law was when you were at warwick university and you climbed a statue so did yes. did you learn anything new you're right yes i did climb the lady godiva statue in coventry city center and um and I touched her, I'm not going to lie to you, I touched her her, her giant iron breasts, which I'm very aware is, is not politically correct. Um, and I apologise for that. I'd like to apologise that to Lady Godiva and, uh, and anyone uh, who may have witnessed that. Um, but I was very drunk and a student. But you're right, that was the only time I got any running with the police and they did caution me. Um, I think for climbing rather than for fondling. But um, I... Uh, yes, but Elgin, like you say, had a much more um, intense experience. And... Um, what was interesting was when you're collaborating with someone uh, like that who's come from a very different background, you you just get a different perspective on things. So, for instance, I said to him once, um, "Would uh, would like you know people in a gang if they had a gun, would they shoot at a bunch of like you know middle class people?" And he was like, "Yeah, they might do." And I said, well, "Wouldn't they be worried about the consequences?" And he said, "No, they don't think about the consequences. That's why they're in a gang." And I thought, "Well, of course that makes sense." But when you're not from that world, when you do have a very kind of cozy 
upbringing, you, you, you think everyone thinks like you. And I think, you know, collaborating with someone who's, who's, who's had a different experience reminds you that, you know, people don't all think like you. And that's very useful. And, and we've tried to create a writer's room of, of people from all kinds of backgrounds to try and enhance that and hopefully reflect that in the show. Do you have a preference between, between being on camera or behind the camera? Well, I mean, you know, there's a great pleasure in, in acting and particularly the fun days where you're doing scenes that you're enjoying or you can play around or you can improvise or you're working alongside actors that, that you're getting on well with and you feel you've got good chemistry with. Um, but there is ultimately something very nutritious about the writing. It's a, it's a puzzle that you're trying to solve every time you sit in front of the computer. And I think there's a challenge to that and a, and a sort of enjoyment to the hardship of it that I quite like. And so the idea that you can start with a blank page and, and, you know, and then sort of several years later you can be here at the BFI, you know, kind of with the actors, you know, having turned that into a reality, there's, there's, a, there's a thrill to that. Is a series three on the horizon? Well, we've been talking about it and we've got ideas that I'm really excited about for it. But I'll, as always, the sort of decision uh, it kind of happens higher up the, ch the food chain. So people um, with money and suits will ultimately let us know if we can do a series three. But certainly we're eager to do it if, if we can. And we've got some, I think, good ideas. And if it doesn't happen, I guess it'll have to be a graphic novel or, um, or a sort of audio podcast. Yeah. And just to finish up, uh, what have you spent your time watching recently on telly? Well, I've been enjoying Severance, which features my old compadre from The Outlaws, Christopher Walken, among others. Excellent. Uh, very good show. And I've also been re-watching The West Wing, which is um, still very relevant and prescient, which is really worrying, given that it's almost 20 years old. And some of the debates in that show about gun control or about abortion are still, still relevant today. So... Um, sort of worrying isn't it in a way that we haven't moved on sufficiently but um yeah i've been revisiting that um that's what i've been up to and the outlaw series two starts on the 5th of june 2022 on bbc one and series one is available to stream guess what on the bbc iplayer You're listening to the Radio Times podcast. This is a special bonus edition for you. I'm Jane Garvey and with me is Kellyanne Taylor. Now, we're going to open the doors to the Hall of Fame with Stephen Fry in a moment. First, a quick word about Starstruck. Um, you've just found out that your one-night stand is actually an international A-list movie star. That's the predicament in millennial rom-com Starstruck, written by and starring award-winning Rose Matafeo. Already in Series 2 on HBO Max and BBC Three, we get to explore fame, status and sexual chemistry through a Kiwi living in London. Now, many might think rom-com is a dirty term, so we asked Rose Matafeo what rom-com best describes her personally. Oh, if I were a rom-com, which would I be? This is hectic because that's not a favourite rom-com question, but if I were one... Oh! To be honest, in my heart of hearts, Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you ever been starstruck? Yes. Um, it was Ben Shepard, the host of Tipping Point. Uh, I met after an episode of filming Taskmaster and I lost it. I couldn't, I was just so, I was, I, I it's the best person I've ever met. I was like, I'm such a fan of your work, man. I watch you every day. And I tried to get myself on Celeb Tipping Point and, um, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and series two ended with Jesse and Tom stood together in a pond. Uh, tell me what filming that was like and was it a one-take job? It was, certainly wasn't a one-take job. I was in that lake for an entire day. It was not the most fun. I tried to be cool, like a cool martyr about those things and be like, I'm cool, I'm fine, it's great in the lake. 
but it was pretty disgusting and what was worse is getting out of the lake and at lunchtime to get back in the lake because I was sopping wet in a sopping wet wetsuit it felt like you peed yourself for an entire lunch break it was um it wasn't great but you know what the results show and the results are that it rained and my hair looks so bad <laughs> Not true. No. <laughs> the second series was commissioned before the first. Uh, did you feel when you first came up with the idea of Starstruck and put pen to paper that it would become what it has? No. Yes and no. I had hoped. I mean, I had hoped it would become what it has, but I, I was kind of blown away by all of the elements that came together. Every department that pulled together uh, to make the show what it is. It goes beyond so much further than what is on the page and what's on the script. It is, it, you know, amazing producers. It's incredible makeup designers, costume designers, uh, camera departments, directors. Uh, it's, it, there's so many elements that have to go right to make a television show that isn't shit. And um, thankfully, I feel like that happened on Starstruck. What's next for you? <sighs> Probably go home, have a cup of tea, watch some t- telly. Um, and you know just chill <laughs> i've got to re- like renew my driver's license um so yeah there's big things on the horizon yeah starstruck series one and two are streaming on bbc iplayer and let's hear it for anyone starstruck by ben shepherd now it's time to induct another worthy legend into the radio times hall of fame we just don't need an intro for Stephen Fry, which is good because we don't have one. We found a sofa to chat to Stephen, beginning by finding out what's currently on the telly in the Fry household. What a very good question. Um, not much. I finished um, Slow Horses, which I adored. The um, uh, Mick Heron novel turned into a... A limited series of, of, of six episodes, I think it was, with Gary Oldman playing this fantastic run to seed spy. And it was marvellously, marvellously done. Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. Was, that was fun. But I'm, I sometimes feel I am very average in the sense that what I like and love and my way of uh, consuming things is absolutely at the centre of what everybody else does. So I started binge-watching, just as binge-watching was starting, with 24 and box sets like that, and became a big, big fan of it. And then I remember joining Netflix and telling everybody how wonderful it was because you could watch all these things. And over the last few months, I've found myself not exactly allergic to it, but I just don't bother... And then you read stories about how Netflix is you know, losing subscribers and maybe people are changing the way they watch again. Are they going back to broadcast um, uh, you know, channels, mm. the old terrestrial, that's what we used to call them? Um, maybe they are. But no, I haven't been watching much, I have to confess. Just sport, mostly. I know it makes some people yawn or vomit. But uh, the great thing about sport is you, do, you never know how it's going to end. And I love that, the surprise of it. Um, I want to talk to you about, over the course of your career, you've been both on screen, behind the screen, as a writer, and I wonder if you have a preference between being the actor or the creator. It's a good question. Being an actor, if I've been doing other things a lot, if I've been writing, um, if I've been attending meetings as in a production capacity, that sort of thing, then being an actor is bliss 
you don't have to make a single decision. You just, you read your lines, you practice a bit in your trailer or whatever you're given as a dressing room. And, you know, you obviously make choices to some extent in your performance, but you're led by a director. You even have lines put on the floor telling you where to stand, you know. And you have a stand-in who absorbs all the light and heat and you sit there uh, happily without a care in the world, without... Whereas... In anything to do with production and writing, it's like being back at school or university again. It's just an essay crisis constantly. Every time you wake up, there's a leak of hot lead into your stomach, you know, as you think, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to have those meetings or Zooms as they now would be. And a large part of me feels I was not put on this planet to do meetings. I just hate them and I'm bad at them. And I don't quite have the guts, as some people do, to sabotage them and be rude and say, hey, I'm just an actor so I can talk in really stupid ways and not be grown-up. But uh, at the same time, I can't join in the grown-up things. I can't read a budget or a spreadsheet or anything of that nature. So, um, yeah, acting is fantastic, you know, release of responsibility. You can be a child. Um, it's not for nothing that Shakespeare called actors players. And, and that's what actors are, you play. Whereas, you know, the other stuff is, is tough. But then if I've been doing two acting jobs in a row, I yearn to have something with a bit more, you know, bite to it. I listened to your Desert Island Diffs from 1988, and in it you talk about how you can't believe how lucky you are to be in this field. And it sounds a little bit like you have a form of kind of imposter syndrome. Is that still...? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it reduces to the extent that... You, you you feel more confident in that you know how you can please somebody or do what it is they want you to do. Um, but I still can't believe that I have been lucky enough to do all the things I have done um, in such a wide variety. And although it's only five years of your life, you, you know, the height and heat of your adolescence, it is such an important five years of your life. And it's like um, a magnifying glass has gone on one's timeline uh, and the adolescent years are blown up into huge magnification and all the other years are just a straight line underneath it. And so those years in which I was such a screw-up and, and thrown, thrown out of schools, went to prison eventually, and, you know, was the despair of my parents and was clearly a very troubled teenager, they still, they're still in the background, you know, they're, still in my, they're like, like scars that don't go away. Um, not necessarily bad scars, because I can refer back to that in the thought of how how many roads my life could have taken, some of them dark and unknowable. And, and it's a thing you get, I've found, and I've spoken to other people from my age as well, once you get to your 60s, you do start thinking and dreaming and, and, and waking up from dreams that are set in your youth. Um, it's as if you're, you're, you're trying to settle your accounts, you know. But, yeah, I mean, I know, I know that I'm worthy of some jobs that I've given and I can, you know, do, do a reasonable, um, you know, make a reasonable fist of them and so on. So it's not a kind of absurd imposter sy syndrome. I try and be realistic. But the whole, the whole picture of it is incredible. I've been thinking about this lately because I've been preparing a lecture I'm supposed to do called the Babel Lecture on, on language. And, uh, and I was recalling a particular time in my childhood when I first became obsessed with reading and words and, and so on. 
partly because I couldn't do anything else. You know, I wasn't musical and I couldn't, I wasn't, couldn't play sport or anything. Um, and uh, and I remember how much I loved television as well. And my father was always turning the television. He'd just storm into the room, unplug the television and say, come on, there's so many more things you could be doing. Um, and then in, when I was about 25 or 6, he suddenly noticed all these television programs I was starting to make. And he said, well, if I'd known that, I would have let you watch. I didn't realise you were preparing for a professional career. But of course, neither did I. You know, I used to watch Parkinson, which was the uh, talk show of the time, the chat show, as we call them. And, um, and, and I was just obsessed with the guests he had on, people like Peter Sellers and Fred Astaire or whatever. I mean, it was, I wanted to climb through the television and just be breathe the same air as these incredible people and the idea that I would one day be on Parkinson if you told me that I would have exploded there would have been bits of gut and dangling sinews all over the wall I just could not have processed it um, I guess a lot of people like that you know you meet um, people in music or whatever and they, they obviously grew up collecting records and practicing you know, chord changes, and suddenly they're at Wembley, or do, you know, and um, and they have the same feeling. It's it's not just imposter syndrome; it's also just the sheer incredible wonder of achieving and being in a place that you never dared dream you would be in. The unbelievably, unfeasibly charming and erudite Stephen Fry. Well, that's it for this bonus festival edition. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you want a list of the programmes we've talked about today and where to find them, go to the episode notes wherever you get your podcasts. Do follow to get episodes as soon as they come out. And importantly, please, please tell everyone. It helps us to keep on making this. Get more from the Radio Times Television Festival 2022 at radiotimes.com slash tvfest. Subscribe to the Radio Times magazine at buysubscriptions.com forward slash Radio Times. And don't forget, the Radio Times podcast is produced by... Something else for immediate media. Thank you very much and thank you for listening.